Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable. In thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The men I work with, uh, the pastors, know that uh, Christmas and Easter are challenges to me, as they are, I think, to most pastors, because you pretty well have your subject laid out for you. It's Christmas, you'll preach Christmas. It's Easter, you'll preach Easter. And that might sound uh, a bit ridiculous to you, um, to think that pastors uh, have difficulty preaching on these subjects. So, of course, you can go through your files and find which text you've preached which year. You know, I've been preaching now for, what, 34 years. The text I've preached most frequently is the one this morning, and it's because it's the one I love most. And it's found in the Gospel of John, not surprisingly. I always used to think that since everybody said you should read John, that John must be the most tender and sweet and of the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm having a habit of <laughs> looking over the, <laughs> all right, I'll look at you, okay. But there are people over there, and I'm much more attracted to people than I am to an iPhone, okay. All right, all right. Jared Cochran exhorts me to look in the camera, so Jared, I'm, I'm channeling you. The Gospel of John is written by the apostle who actually shows up in the account this morning. And he shows up in a very interesting way. But the Gospel of John is not the tenderest and sweetest and most upbeat gospel by any means. I would say that the Gospel of John is the heart gospel. It's the gospel that never messes around with superficialities if it can get to the heart. Anyhow, let me read to you uh, verses 1 to 10, and then in a few minutes we'll read verses 11 to 18. This is the word of God, and it's eternally true. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings there. But he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And so the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed." For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now first, note the day. It's Sunday. We used to have a man in this church who uh, came to the church for years, but kept saying he was a Seventh-day Adventist, and 
He judged our church for not meeting on the Sabbath, which he said was Saturday. Well, that's because we follow scripture and we follow the early church and we follow all church history. And that is that the day that Christ was raised from the dead is Sunday. And in honor of his resurrection, we have always met on Sunday. And so this is our day of rest now, the rest that Jesus entered into when he was raised from the dead. So she came and it says early to the tomb. And then it adds, wow, it was still dark. So it was a new day, but it wasn't yet light. It was very early in the morning. And what was Mary doing? Well, she was up. She couldn't sleep any longer. She wanted to be with her Messiah. She wanted to be with Jesus. She wanted to be with her teacher. Now, when she arrived, what did she see? Well, she saw that the stone had already been taken away from the tomb. Now, do you remember why the stone was there? There are a couple of accounts of how the stone was put there and why and what was done with the stone and the guards and stuff. But the stone was put there by the rich man who gave the grave to Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea did not just give his sepulcher, his, uh, his cave, to Jesus carved out of the rocks, but he also gave a huge stone. Because we read in Mark 15, 46, Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus in his own tomb, and after he placed Jesus in the tomb, rolled a stone across the tomb's entrance, and then Mark 16, 4 reports that it was, quote, a very great stone. In other words, a very large and a very heavy stone. You can picture some of these stones that are outside of the quarries, you know, that they've cast off because maybe they won't be able to be shaped the way they want them. This was a very large and heavy stone. Now, Mary was there to care for Jesus. And how was she going to care for him? Notice I said Jesus. I didn't say Jesus' body because that's a... That's a I mean, ask Mary, Mary, are you caring for Jesus or are you caring for his body? And Mary would look at you like you're crazy. The dead are the people. And that's why we love their body. We, we have not known them without a body. All right? And so she's there to love Jesus and she loves him. How? Well, she, she's there to love him by anointing him with spices and oils. Why? Well, because these would cover up the smells of death. It was her way of loving Jesus. She wasn't home in bed telling herself, it's just Jesus' body. She wasn't home telling herself, well, the spirit is gone, you know, and so it doesn't matter. I'm just going to go back to sleep. But she took her oil, she took her spices very early in the morning while it was still dark. She went to Jesus. And arriving at the tomb, she saw that they had already removed the very great stone from the tomb. Now, notice the word already. This indicates that she, on the way, had been wondering how she was going to move this very great stone. That was probably all she was thinking of the whole way to the grave. How am I going to move this stone? She gets there. It's already removed. Already taken away from the tomb. She must have looked inside because we next read that she ran and reported to Peter and John. Now, why do I say John? Because it doesn't say John in the text. Well, I say John because what it says in the text is the other disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, John 
there are certain people that resemble John. And uh, I can imagine if I had been writing this account, I was writing the Gospel of John and reporting on myself, I would have said, and I, and I, and I. But John is the one who says the disciple that Jesus loved. He doesn't use the word I. And this is typical of John's personality. John uses a circular way of speaking, the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And so worried and wondering, Mary went to them and she said to them, verse 2, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Okay, so that's the women. Now it's the men's turn. The women were first, the men second. So, verse 3, Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb, and the two were running together. I get a kick out of that running together, you know. When do you see grown men, middle-aged grown men, running together unless they're out in their, uh, uh, <laughs> in their running shorts, you know, pursuing vanity publicly? Grown men don't run together. Working men uh, and yet here they are, the two were running together, verse 4. The two disciples that Jesus was closest to, the three he was closest to were Peter and James and John. The two he was closest to were John and Peter. And they're running together. What is it that causes grown men to run somewhere? Well, something extraordinary. Something on the level of a woman's report that Jesus is no longer in the tomb. Then it says, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And that one is hard to believe, isn't it? Anyone doing anything harder and faster than Peter? Anyone beating Peter to the punch? But John, the disciple that Jesus particularly loved, he beat Peter to the tomb. He was, it says, faster than Peter. And he got there first. But John was John, after all, and being John, he acted like John. And it says, stopping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. John only stooped and looked in, and it's he himself who reports this about himself, but he did not go in, he writes. Now, Peter, on the other hand, was Peter, after all, and being Peter, he acted like Peter. Verse 6, and so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Peter's always flat out, isn't he? He may have been second to the tomb, but he was first in the tomb. And he was first to see the distribution of the linen wrappings and face cloth. Now, what's the significance of the wrappings and the face cloth? Well, we have to move on to verse 8 to see. Verse 8, so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, so this would have been John, then also entered and he saw and believed. Now, what did he see? Well, he saw the body no longer had the burial linen and the head cloth. In other words, the body's gone, but the linens and the face cloth are still there. And furthermore, the face cloth is, is, is lying in a different place. Now, they wouldn't have been left behind in the tomb if 
it was the body being taken as a dead body. Nobody's going to take the cloths off the head. Nobody's going to take the linen off the body if they're stealing a dead body. They're going to want it covered up. And all of a sudden, it hits John. And what does it say? It says, verse 8, he saw and he believed. Now, what did he believe? Well, in verse 9, he gives us an editorial note to explain his statement that he had believed. It says, for as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now, I want to talk about this a little, time, a little while. When we read that verse, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead, we just take it in stride and we think, well, yeah, you know, resurrection's pretty extraordinary. But what if, right before he died, Jesus had said, they're going to crucify me, and then I'm going to rise from the dead in three days. And so, one, two, three. Three days, okay? What if Jesus had explicitly and clearly told them right before he was crucified that he would rise again in three days? Now then, we come to verse 9. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Well, of course, you know from knowing your Bibles that Jesus did say it right before he was crucified. <laughs> but you also know that he said it again and again and again and again and again. So I want to uh, really drive this point home of how often Jesus said it. So let me read them to you. Matthew 16, beginning with verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And then we read, Jesus took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this should never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Now, all of us remember that text because of the rebuke of Peter, okay? But do we forget that what caused Peter to be rebuked was him contradicting the Lord when the Lord said that he would suffer, that he would die, and that he would be raised from the dead? Then in John chapter 2, so this is right at the beginning of the Gospel of John. The Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us of your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, quote, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, unquote. It's very interesting that right at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus cleaned the temple out and right at the end of his ministry. It's also interesting that Jesus showed absolutely no respect and did not speak in an admiring way and in fact rebuked his disciples when they did so about the temple, this extraordinary temple. And so he says, destroy this temple in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple. Yeah, 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 that, what, that's what I'm thinking, you know. Hey, Mike, are you there? <laughs> you know, how many years is it going to take to build this temple? 46, I don't think 46, maybe what, 30? All right, okay, all right. 
It says it took 46 years to build this temple. When you raise it up in three days, and then the editorial note from John, he says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word with Jesus had spoken. Now you can, you can say, well, that one is a little bit uh, teasingly unclear, okay? Well, then what about Matthew 12, beginning with verse 39? Jesus answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah the prophet, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man. This is what Jesus called himself. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You can say, well, again, that's a little bit distant, you know. Okay, what about this? This is Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and they must be killed and on the third day be raised to light. Now, notice at the beginning, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain. This is the second time. It said this also earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, that he was in the habit of saying this. This was a constancy in his teaching of his disciples. That what? That he would go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. In Mark 8, 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Luke 9, 22, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Okay, you get the point. The point is, Jesus taught this constantly. He never stopped teaching this. He must be killed, and the third day he would be raised from the dead. Now, it's possible that the disciples were so scandalized by his prediction of suffering and death, and particularly at the hands of the religious leaders, that they entirely missed this promise of his coming resurrection. It's interesting, then, that Peter and James and John went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, and that as they were coming back down the mountain, Jesus told them. And so Peter and John are the ones that go to the grave, and one of them believes. It says he, singular, believed. And yet, after the Transfiguration, we read in Matthew 17, verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. In Mark 9, we read of the same account after he said this. It says, they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant, <laughs> which I get a kick out of, you know. Well, maybe rising from the dead meant rising from the dead. So it's obvious that the disciples, including James and Peter and John, are having great difficulty understanding what Jesus is talking about with respect to the resurrection. They're confused. And this pattern of Jesus telling them, but it going right over the top of their heads, this pattern continues. And 
I could read more, Mark 9.30, Matthew 17.22. Then, finally, you remember what I said, at the very end of his life, when the fulfillment of all these prophecies was almost upon them, there was hardly any time left to prepare. They'd already gone to Jerusalem. That was part of the prophecy. Jesus spoke his word of warning again. In Luke 18, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Finally, just prior to his trial and to his crucifixion, when he was in the upper room, presiding over the Last Supper, Jesus gave them one last chance to believe in the resurrection. In Matthew 26, 32, we read that he said to his disciples up there in the upper room, but after I have risen... I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now listen. It's not just the disciples. We too are of little faith. I don't think any of us think that we would have approached the tomb, hopefully, if we had been Mary Magdalene. I think we think that we would have stayed in bed and said it was just a body, (laughs) you know. The spirit was gone and gone to sleep again. Mary Magdalene herself didn't believe. And John doesn't report they believed about himself and Peter. He says he believed, referring to himself. It's worth commenting on Peter and John going to the grave, running there with Peter overtaking John at the end and springing in the tomb first, that they did this despite not believing in Jesus' resurrection. Their faith was so very weak. Calvin says that God used the empty grave to, quote, nourish their faith. And then Calvin says it's like an unborn child in the womb. Very weak. Barely alive. Peter and John then went back to their homes, and that's in some ways... (laughs) Very interesting little verse 10. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. What would I have done if if I had been there? I'm not sure. Now, what of Mary? Well, verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. So Mary obviously still didn't believe, right? She's outside weeping. And as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Now, why did Mary weep? Why was Mary crying? Because they'd taken her Jesus and she didn't know where he was. So God, in his kindness, sent angels to minister to her in her terrible grief. Verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away, and she doesn't say the body of my Lord. She says, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Then, verse 14 When she had said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing there. And then it says, and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She didn't hardly know what she was saying. 
Her response made no sense. It says in verse 15, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. She didn't know how she was going to move the great stone and she did not know how she was going to move and carry the body. But where there's a will and where there's Mary, there's a way. So there Jesus is. It wasn't that his body was unrecognizable. We know that even down to the nails in his hands. Remember Thomas being invited by Jesus to put his finger in the nail holes? And so Jesus was recognizable, even his wounds. And he was standing there in his body, recognizable, but to those with eyes to see. And Mary Magdalene did not yet have eyes to see. Calvin says, quote, In Mary, we have an instance of the mistakes common to the human mind. Although Christ offers himself to our sight, we devise various shapes for him so that our senses conceive anything rather than the true Christ. For the eyes of our minds are faulty in themselves and are also bewitched by the world and Satan that they may not discern the truth. Now, why would we not be able to see the truth? Well, because we don't want to see the truth. It's the same thing I said earlier in the devotion on the pictures of Jesus. We make Jesus into a pretty boy because we really would like to worship a guy who's handsome and buff. I'm reading uh, old sailing uh, stories on my Kindle. And because I'm a tightwad, I, I don't pay to have no advertisements. And so every single time I open it and start to read, I'm presented with a picture of a book they think I want to buy. And it just boggles my mind how off they are because every single time, well, not every single time, but at least two-thirds of the time, it's some gothic romance with some strong man with long hair holding a woman in his arms. You know, well, that's what we make Jesus into. Why? Well, because we want to worship a buff dude who runs with other men to get exercise and pumps and is capable of taking a woman in his arms. And this is what Calvin is saying. Calvin is saying, that we're bewitched by the world, and so we can't see Jesus as he is. And that really is what's going on with the disciples hearing Jesus say again and again and again, I'm going to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. I am going to be killed, and the third day I'll raise again from the dead. And they just could not conceive of the Messiah, of, of their Jesus being killed, let alone raised from the dead. And Mary is there looking right at him, arguably the one who loved him most because she was forgiven most. And she can't see him. It's very interesting. In Mark 15, we read, Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down. So this is Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man who gave him the grave. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down from the cross, Jesus wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And then it says this, it says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, were looking on to see where he was laid. And so she's last at the cross and she's first at his grave. 
She stayed longest there, and she was soonest at the tomb. Finally, verse 17, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me. Excuse me. Verse 16, so she thought he was a gardener. She said, I'll take him away. Tell me where you've laid him. Then verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. (laughs) Oh, man. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. So Jesus said to her, verse 17, stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to us, to them. You can ask yourself why Mary finally recognized him. The answer is always the same when it comes to eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that repent, and it is because of the Spirit of God. There is no way of awakening your son. The Holy Spirit alone can do it. There's no way of awakening your husband or your parents. There is no way of you awakening yourself. There's no gift that you can give to the Father. The Father takes pleasure in his Son. His Son is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Mary recognized Jesus because the Holy Spirit had opened her eyes. Mary recognized Jesus because she recognized his voice. This is another thing that the Holy Spirit gives us. In John 10, 3, we read that the sheep listen to the shepherd's voice. He calls his own sheep by, by name. Jesus said, Mary. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. And then Jesus says about himself, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So now, The question at the end of this account of the resurrection is, do you know Jesus? I'm not asking you whether you know about Jesus. I'm not asking you if you know things about Jesus. I'm not asking you if you are a part of a church that talks about Jesus. I'm asking, do you know Jesus? In Isaiah 53, it says, By his knowledge, my righteous one will justify many. There's no one who will be in heaven other than those who know Jesus personally. We can recoil over the abuse of the phrase, a personal relationship with Jesus, which has largely destroyed the bride of Christ, the church, in in the uh, priorities of Christians in, in the 20th century. But it is true 
that we must have a personal relationship with Jesus. The Bible doesn't show us Mary, let alone John, the disciple that Jesus was. The Bible doesn't show us the relationship with Peter there after the resurrection where Jesus rebukes him and tells him to feed his sheep, his flock. The Bible doesn't show us these things so that we can say, well, they had a relationship with Jesus and I have, I, I observe it, you know. Remember, that uh, the Apostle Paul says, I know whom I have believed. And so I'm going to ask you, would you have recognized Jesus' voice? Would he have called you by name? Are you one of his sheep? I, I, I have no ability of making you a sheep of Jesus. I have no ability of making you know his voice. Now, why was it? that Jesus knew Mary, and Mary knew Jesus. Well, I want to read a little poem. Uh, this poem is uh, called Mary Magdalene, and I have to give a few explanations of the poem. First of all, uh, Michael is the archangel at Heaven's Gate. He's one of the fiercest warrior angels uh, it was Michael who stood in the path ready to kill Balaam with the sword. He's the one that guards the church, the bride of Christ. And it's also this archangel Michael who guards the gates of heaven. And Jude tells us that it was Michael who disputed with the devil over the body of Moses. And the title of this poem is Mary Magdalene. Magdalene at Michael's gate. In other words, the archangel standing at the gate of heaven. And Mary Magdalene shows up at the gate of heaven. And then it says, Magdalene at Michael's gate, turled at the pin, which is an old-fashioned way of saying, ringing the doorbell of heaven. Michael, Mac Magdalene at Michael's gate, turled at the pin. On Joseph's thorn sang the blackbird, let her in, let her in. All right, one more explanation, then you're done with the explanations. Joseph's thorn is, over in England, it's called the Glastonbury thorn. It's really a common hawthorn of a tree. It's also called the holy thorn. And legend has it that Joseph of Arimathea, the one that buried Jesus in his grave, that Joseph of Arimathea traveled up to Glastonbury and that he planted his staff in the ground and that that staff took root and grew. And that this tree, the Glastonbury thorn, or here it's Joseph's thorn, grew from his staff. And this particular tree, although now there are some descendants, but it flowers twice a year. And so Magdalene at Michael's gate, at the gate of heaven, Michael gardening it, turled it's been, she rings the doorbell. On Joseph's thorn, so nearby is this hawthorn of, of Joseph of Arimathea. On Joseph's thorn, sitting there, is the blackbird. And what does the blackbird say? The blackbird says, let her in, let her in. Hast thou seen the wounds, said Michael? Knowest thou thy sin? It is evening, evening, sang the blackbird. Let her in, let her in. And then Mary, yes, I have seen the wounds, and I know my sin. 
She knows it well, 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 sang the blackbird. Let her in, let her in. Thou bringest no offerings, said Michael, not save sin. And the blackbird sang, she is sorry, sorry, sorry. Let her in, let her in. And then it says, when he had sung himself to sleep and night did begin. One came and opened Michael's gate, and Magdalene went in. So we see this tender, tender recognition scene, the greatest in all literature, between Mary and her master. And Mary knew her master. The time came for Mary to die. And what did Mary have to present at the door of heaven? She had to present her sins. She had been forgiven much, and so she loved much. And so it's a very, very tender story that this is the woman who first saw the empty tomb all her sin, and then Jesus appears to her first. And what a precious story. We have to become like little children. We have to become like Mary Magdalene. And go to Jesus and present ourselves in all our filthiness and hope that the blackbird is there on the hawthorn and is pleading for us and that in time the shepherd himself comes and opens the gate of heaven to us. So, may you come to know the joy as we know it of repenting of your sins and placing your faith in our risen Savior. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is Lord of the universe. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Our Father God, we give you praise that you did not abandon your son in the grave, but that you vindicated him. In the eyes of the watching world, which had humiliated him and mocked and scorned him and beat him and crucified him, that you raised him from the dead and that now he is seated at your right hand, forever living to be the intercessor of those that you call to yourself. Father, we pray that you will take us in all our sin and that you will wash us with his blood. We pray, Father, that we will be humble and loving as Mary Magdalene. We pray, Father, that you will give us faith in the resurrection and that particularly on this Easter Sunday as we think of all those who have loved you down through the ages and have looked only to the cross for their justification that we too might die in faith and that you will raise us on that day and that we might be at the marriage feast of the Lamb 
joining in worship eternally, that we might have great joy seeing the face of our master as Mary had in seeing his face then. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.